Well, good morning. It is great to see you guys this morning. We are uh, going to be, uh, we've just ended our, our previous series, The Unsettled Life, and we're starting back into the book of John this morning. And I'm excited to get back into it. We're going to look at some pretty interesting uh, section of scripture today. And uh, just kind of as a warning, um, just put on your thinking cap because Jesus is going to challenge us and he's going to challenge us with some pretty, uh, pretty interesting concepts. But before we do that, I really wanted to open in prayer this morning, realizing, you know, there's a lot of us who have been sick. How many of you guys have had that thing going around and you've been knocked out on your back. If you haven't had it, you will. Uh, but the, uh, unless you have your oils, right? No, I'm just kidding. But the, uh, plug or not plug, you can pick. So it's, uh, it's cool. The, uh, the reality is that there, there are a lot of people sick. There are a lot of people going through, uh, various stages of this, whether it's knocking them down flat, turning into tonsillitis, pneumonia, you name it. I just want to lift those people up this morning before we get going. So if you would join with me, let's pray. Father, we, we lift up our brothers and sisters in Christ here at Olive Branch and in all the churches in Corona and Lord, just uh, our city in general, knowing that there is just a lot of sickness that happens in the fall. And Lord, uh, for those who may be um, people who are, are generally a, either going through some major health issues in their life and so more susceptible to the dangers of this or because they've gotten older and their, li- their bodies aren't fighting it off as well, we pray for protection. We ask that you um, bless them and give them good medical aid. God, for others who are working through this, we pray that you'd heal them, bring them back to us as soon as, as possible so that we can just be worshiping together. And for all of us here who haven't gone through this, um, this cold, crazy thing, we pray for your, your aid in our health. Lord, whether it's um, through keeping ourselves up or through the various means that you've given to us, we thank you. We ask for your help and your aid. Father, finally, pray you'd allow your word to be open to our hearts and our lives that we might um, hear it and be more bold in our stance with you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You know, one of the things I've been told, and it's kind of a joke around here uh, about me, is that if you ever have a question and you're on campus, you're going to wind up in my office, and it's going to be a two-hour seminar with a triangle and about three books that you'll be leaving with. And um, I, find that, I find that slightly insulting if it wasn't true. But the, uh, the reality is that it's true, because there's another part of me that everybody reminds me, is that I, uh, I get hypersensitive when it comes to theology. Um, just ask Brent, who probably picks on me weekly of some theological issue or something to try to get my hackles up. If you, I just care about theology a lot. I, I love it. My, my office is filled with books on it. I study it continuously. I, I just love the concept of theology. So you can imagine when we have a guest, and if you're a guest, I'm not going to do this to you, but we had a guest a few weeks ago who was a mom of one of, the, one of our congregants. She'd come, and I was meeting her in the back, and we were having this conversation. She says something to the akin of, oh, I love this church. It's very nice. I'm glad you talked about love. Love is the center of all religions. Don't you know that? That, that love is what all, everything's about. I don't care if you're Islamic, Jewish, you name it. Love is what all of these religions are about. I think I held back the twitch, but I'm not quite sure at that point. So I was just like... Mm, nah, my toes are curling inside my shoes. You know, whatever way I can show it. And finally, I just couldn't handle it. I was just like, mm, okay, well, actually, there's a very big distinctives between these, and you can't really say that because it's not necessarily true. And, and she's just like, I'm going to keep talking about my, I'm just like, so I said, you know, I realized that was a bad idea. If you're a guest, I'm not going to theologically attack you at this point. Later, if you become a congregant, you watch out because I'm going to get you. But the reality is that that statement has come up. How many of you have seen that statement or felt that statement or heard that statement, whether it's tolerance sticker bumpers or whatever, all religions are the same. Anybody heard that terminology? Anybody ever use that terminology? Don't raise your hand. The, uh... 
But the reality is that, the, that this is a common thought amongst Americans, is that all religions are in general the same. And so what's the big deal? Why do we always divide? Rabbi Zacharias, who is a Christian apologist uh, from India, actually makes it very clear. He says, look, no, um, in the ancillary periphery, on the things on the edge, yeah, they look similar. But it's when you get to the core of what each, thing, each, each um, religion believes, you realize they are radically opposed to one another. And it is that very reality that when people say, oh, they're all the same, they're asking us to jettison what makes us distinctive. And what's interesting is that it's not us as pastors, it's not you as congregants, it's not Christians that make their faith distinctive. We're not just being stubborn because, hey, we want to we wanna make ourselves different. No, it's because Jesus actually laid himself on the line to draw such a sharp distinction when it came to what he was setting up. In fact, what we're going to look at today in the book of John is one of the most, is if not the most distinctive aspect of all of Christian faith. And it was set up by Jesus. In fact, Jesus is going to do this in the midst of a very religious, religiously plural nation called Rome. Rome had thousands of gods. They had hundreds of religions. If there was a new one, they hugged it and they adopted it into their culture. They were extremely open to any religious con concept. And the, and the opposite side were the Jewish people who were extremely closed. There was only one God, one location to worship God, only one way to worship God. And you only did it in, on a certain amount of days because you had to rest on a very, very clear, distinctive manner. And Jesus shows up in the middle of this and he pretty much is gonna offend everybody. So let's take a look at what he's doing. What is this distinctive that is so sharp that Jesus makes? It's found in John chapter five. So go ahead and grab a Bible, if you will. We're gonna look at what Jesus was saying about himself today in John chapter five. Let me begin in verse 16 and we'll roll through four. So as you find that, it, yeah, Bibles are available under the seat. You can pull one out and join us, page 890 in those Bibles. Otherwise, you can open up to... Uh, verse 16 in chapter five of the book of John. As a background, uh, the chapter five starts off and Jesus is showing up at a festival. Likely it's a Passover festival, but he's shown up and hundreds of people have flocked to this, basically this pool called Bethesda. And while they're there, they're waiting for this water to kind of get stirred up. Whether it's um, from underneath it or whatever it is debated, but the reality is this water would stir up from time to time and everybody was there, whether they were uh, sick or whether they were you know, crippled or whatever their situation was because of how they were living, they tried to get into the water to be healed. So everyone is there to be healed. Everyone is excited about it. Jesus shows up in this massive throng, picks out one guy who has been um, pretty much uh, hindered in his life from a sin that he had committed and now he can't walk. And he, for 38 years, he's lived this way and he heals him. Boom, Matt, radical transformation right there. Tells him, take up your mat, go home. Man rolls his mat up, gets up and walks away. And then we meet what, what, um, what John calls the Jews. And the Jews in this case are the Jewish leadership, probably the Pharisees. And they stop and they say, what are you doing? You can't walk around with your mat. You, you can't cross this boundary. That's work on the Sabbath. Don't you get it? You're breaking the law. You are gonna sin. And he's like, I just got healed. This guy told me to do this. Or who was that? He's like, I don't know. Later on, he meets Jesus in the temple and Jesus says, hey, I see that you're walking, you're doing good. Don't sin anymore, okay? And, he, and so this guy's like, oh, it's Jesus, that's who healed me. Runs to the Pharisees and tells them, Jesus is the one that did this. He's the one who told me to, to sin, okay? There you go. And so we begin in verse 16. 
And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. We'll stop there. There's a little bit more background going on here. The Sabbath is an important concept for the Jewish people. They will work six days and rest on Saturday as part of one of the Ten Commandments that you rest on the seventh day. And so they held very tightly to this vision. In fact, there were rules about how you lived. You couldn't carry your mat across a boundary that was to work. You couldn't do certain things. Um, you couldn't pull heads of grain off because that was, that was a that was to work in the fields. There's all these rules that they had established to protect them from breaking the Sabbath because it was one of their distinctive as Jewish people. And here Jesus is saying something that it was okay for him to, to work on the Sabbath, to heal some guy for a very specific reason. You see, he says, my father is working until now. And he's referencing an old argument since the Jewish religion kind of spread out into a world of multiple religions, people would challenge them. Okay, so if your God is so good, how does he sustain the universe on the Sabbath? Isn't he working? And if he's working on the Sabbath, isn't he breaking his own law? How can he be just? And so there's all these debates incurred in Judaism over how can God keep everything up in the universe and yet have rested on the Sabbath? Does he break his own law? What's going on? They all resolve basically in the end to say, you know what, here's what's going on. God is everywhere, so he never crosses a boundary, so he can't break the Sabbath that way. He can never lift anything greater than himself because he is the greatest thing that he is. And so he never lifts anything. So yeah, God's working, but it's not work. That was their solution. Later on, Christian would argue, no, God, God's done working in the way of creating. That's what Genesis 1 is talking about. And so he's not creating anything new, but he's sustaining his creation in a celebration. So there's all these debates that we modern Americans were like, what's the big deal? So for them, it was a big deal. And Jesus references this and says, look, my father works on the Sabbath. And he's been working until now, and I am working. And so suddenly, he, that, that's an interesting way of saying things. My dad works this way. That's why I work this way. And everybody got this idea. In the ancient world, if your father was a carpenter, you were a carpenter. If your dad was, was engaged in, in, in the commercial industry, you were going to be engaged in commercial industry. If he was a fisherman, you were a fisherman, etc., etc. What your father did is what the son did. In fact, you represented your father as a son. Your character sullied your father if you were bad, not you. And so there was a very strong connection between fathers and sons in the ancient world. And, and so no wonder when Jesus says this, all the Jewish leaders are like, ah! what? You can't say that about yourself. This is why verse 18 says, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. He was claiming equality. They're going, you can't do that. That's blasphemy. We ought to kill you right now. And Jesus goes, oh, you think I'm saying I'm equal with God? <laughs> you got it all wrong. That's not what Jesus tells us is he is God. He doesn't say I'm equal. He ups the ante. And if you've ever had somebody tell you that all religions are the same, this is the one distinctive that radically sets all aspects of Christianity apart. Their founder claimed, our founder claimed he is God. Take a look. Begins in verse 19 as Jesus replies to them. He says, truly I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, 
but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show him so that you may marvel. And so he starts here, he says, look, this is how much I am God. Whatever my father does, I do. Whatever I see my father doing is what I do. In fact, look at what he says right there in verse 19. He says, the son can do nothing of his own accord. He says, I don't even have my own will. I don't even do anything I want to do. I only do what my father does. If I'm doing it, my father is doing it. You see me act, you seeing God act. In fact, later in the book of John, he will look at one of his disciples named Philip who says, show us the father. And he'll say this, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus said, if you see me, you see the Father, you see God? Because everything I do, my Father does. Can you imagine if somebody stood up in front of you and said, yeah, you know, me and the the president, I can do whatever the president does. You see me doing something, it's what the president does. I can declare war like the president. I can tell, I, I can do executive orders like the president. Whatever the president does, I can do. We would go, you're nuts. Prove it. Well, here Jesus has just healed somebody who's been had an infirmary for 38 years. Has him stand up, move on out. He's been doing all these miracles. He's changed water into wine. And, and people are, and he's going, look, you, you see these works? This is because I do whatever the father does. It's not just I have my, I have my own will and I obey God. No, I am God. My father shows me what he's doing because he loves me. And because of his love for me, I have a unique relationship which I do everything my father does. I am God is the equation. In fact, it implies that whatever he does is good and whatever he does is right. And whatever he does is God's will. He never sins. So there's huge implications in what Jesus says. In fact, he keeps it going. He, he kind of takes on to the next level. He says, look, just as my father is just and, and is, is the application of justice, he's going to judge people because in the ancient Jewish thinking, God is the one who's going to judge everyone. He says, no, 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 that's my job. Um, we're going to skip around a bit, but I'll try to read through this. Hang in there. This is complicated Jewish conversation. It doesn't go nice and linear where we go, talk about judgment, talk about life. No, Jesus jumps all over. So watch, just mark if you can the two terms judgment and life as we go through. If you want to underline it, in your, yes, you can underline your Bible, even the ones in the seats, that's fine. And just kind of go through it. He starts off in verse 21. Bless you. For the, father ra- for the father raises the dead and gives them life. So also the son gives life to whom he will. The father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. That all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to also have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Hear the terms life, judgment, life, judgment, life, judgment, all over the place. And what Jesus is saying is, look, I am the judge. Look at verse 22. The father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. 
That's a pretty radical statement. He's saying, look, you, you thought the father was going to sit there and judge humanity? No. When you get to the end, uh, it's the last day of judgment, Jesus sits on the throne and he's the one who adjudicates judgment on all humanity. Not, not, not this ethereal God, not this wonder old man sitting with the bong beard. No, it, it's Jesus judging humanity. And in fact, it tells us that he has been given that because in verse 27, he's the son of man. Look, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. What does that mean? No, he's born of a man. No, it's not, it has nothing to do with his humanity. It has everything to do with the title son of man. The title son of man is, is rarely found, but it's found in the Old Testament and it's used in two locations. It's in the book of Ezekiel, who was a prophet at the time of Babylon. He lived out in Babylon and he was constantly told by God, hey, son of man, go do this. And now all of Ezekiel's book, over and over he's called son of man and his constant job is to speak to things, to judge the nations with his prophecies or to speak to like a valley of dry bones and bring them to life. Very similar language going on here. But the second thing is the oddity of the term son of man found in the book of Daniel. Daniel, also a prophet who lived through Babylon and into several other empires after that, was, was a court eunuch and he was probably one of the top men in he was one of the top men in Babylon and as he received visions from God he would he would write them down and tell the king one of those visions was about the history it would start with Babylon and then it would move into Medio Persian Empire and then it would move into Greece and then finally it would end with Rome and in this vision where he receives how the empires are going to roll suddenly there's this horn that appears out of nowhere on one of the beasts that he's got this picture of and this thing's a blasphemous, arrogant horn. And it ticks God off so much, he shows up in a court scene. And he's, God is called the Ancient of Days. And he takes this horn, he sits it down, and he judges it and throws it into this judgment. And in the midst of all this, suddenly we wind up with this guy called this, like the one son of man who shows up. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. What's fascinating is the dominion that's given to him was stripped from all the other nations and given strictly to him. And so this is the picture of the one judge, the king over all peoples, who is right to judge all humanity. And Jesus says, you want to know why I get to write the judge? Because I'm the son of man. I'm the one who's been given all dominion, authority, and power over all of your nation, people, and tribe, and tongue. And in the end, all humanity stands before him. Prior to that, the only conception of that judgment was given only to God, who he calls father. And here Jesus then says, I am God. I have the judgment of God, which means he's just like God meaning he's righteous like God. And so now not only does he do the things of God, he judges like God does. In fact, what's odd is the next one. You want to think, yeah, maybe there's wiggle room in those until you get to verse 22 and 23. Look at it again in your text. The father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. Why? So that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Not only is Jesus claiming, I do what God does, I judge as God judges, I should be worshiped as God is worshiped. 
Honor is a very, very powerful term in the ancient world. Uh, in our world, honor is kind of like loose. It's not really used much. The closest we can all get to it is when you were a kid and you were in elementary school and it was time for you to stand up because we were going to stand up and say the Pledge of Allegiance. The reason we stand at the national anthem, we stand for the Pledge of Allegiance, put our hand over our hearts, is because when we honor the symbol of the flag, we honor the idea of our country. And honor goes through that. And so when you dishonor the flag, you dishonor your country. You dishonor your government and the people that make up that government. So there's this association with honor that we can get there. We can kind of grasp that concept. What Jesus is saying is, if you honor me, then you honor me with the same kind of honor you honor God. The Jews understood this. So they lived in a world where all kinds of religions existed, all kinds of temples were, all kinds of gods existed. And suddenly Jesus says, you guys honor me like you honor the father. How did the Jews honor God? Well, first they had the Sabbath day, which they rested on. There was no weekend in the Roman Empire. Can we praise the Jewish people for giving us a weekend? Amen, right now? Yeah, I was like, next is that they had certain food laws. They would only eat certain things and they wouldn't eat other things. And that's how they made distinctively, they were Jewish. They honored God. Then there was circumcision. Yahoo. And then we have a, and then we have the situation where there's one God and you worshiped him at the temple. It was the only place to worship him. You could go to synagogue to learn about him, but you did sacrifice and you worshiped him only at the temple. This is how you honored God. You held to these distinctives and you didn't worship idols. And Jesus says, with that kind of finitude, that kind of precision, that kind of honor in which you are willing to sacrifice all other things and these other deals to honor God, that is how you honor me. I deserve the same level of devotion and worship. That's crazy. Jesus is not making himself out to be some nice moral teacher. Jesus isn't setting himself up to be some cool religious guy. He is literally telling them, Yes, you monotheistic Jewish people who believe in one God. I'm that one God, and I deserve the same worship as my father. And then he goes even a step further. Well, he does the things of God, and he judges like God does, and he has the honor that God deserves. Finally, he says, I am the giver of the very life as God gives life. It's all over the place. It begins in verse 21. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. It goes down to verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, Jesus says, and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He's passed out of judgment from death into life. Truly, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live. Has anybody connected this idea of hearing a voice or a voice speaking and life coming about? What, what chapter, if you, I mean, even most people know what happens in Genesis chapter one, right? God speaks and things are created. God speaks and life comes about. God speaks. And what Jesus is saying here is, look, I speak and the dead get life. I speak and I give eternal life to whoever will heed my words. Jesus isn't just saying, I have, I'm a, I've got the right to give life. In fact, what's powerful is he literally says, I am life. Look at verse 26. For as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. This is divine attribute conversation. This means that God is the one who is life. Erase God, there's no life, there's no existence, there's nothing. God is the one who bestows life. But Jesus says, I don't just have the right to give life away. I am life in and of myself. 
I do what God does, he says. I judge like God judges, he says. I deserve the honor God deserves, he says. I am life and I give it like God gives it because I'm God. No, I'm not equal. I am, he says. That's pretty crazy. Let's be honest with ourselves for a second, guys. If somebody stood up in this congregation, if I stood up here and said these kind of things, you would kick me out. And rightly so, because this isn't some simple sentence. This isn't something our modern world gets to go, oh, that's nice. You believe that about yourself. You should stand in front of the waves and, and scream it out. You know, no, this isn't the same idea. Jesus isn't saying, yeah, we're all divine and there's this divine spark. And all. No, he's actually saying there is only one God. He's Jewish and I'm him. There's no other gods. It's the distinctive of Christian faith that our founder is God. And this is either true or it's false. There is no other way to deal with this. Either it's true or it's false. And people go, yeah, no, no, that's not. There's other ways to deal with this. I don't know. Um, C.S. Lewis, if you've ever encountered him, how many of you have heard of C.S. Lewis? Throw your hands up real quick. Okay, most people have at this point. But C.S. Lewis was the author of many books. Most notably is uh, The Chronicles of Narnia. If you saw those movies, they were children's books. Many of us got to read them as kids, loved them growing up. Uh, but he wasn't a children's author. That wasn't his main aim. He was actually a, a, his, a literary historian. who uh, He was the head of the Cambridge Department of Liter Literature and, His and English History literature history blah, blah, at Cambridge. And before that, he was at Oxford and he worked at Oxford as one of the, um, the historical literature professors. Guy is steeped in literature, loved Beowulf, read it in the original language. You know, this is the kind of guy, he's a huge, big brain. But he was an atheist when he worked at Oxford and through his studies and his engagement with various Christians became a Christian and actually began to write considerably and record radio broadcasts and stuff for the sake of talking about Christianity and the reasonableness of Christianity. And he had an interesting stance and perspective being trained in philosophy and literature. When it came to Jesus, he reminds everybody, this man is the moral giant. He who can study Confucius, and he did, and you can study the Buddha, and he did, and you can study Islam, and he did. And he says, you can pick up all these good little things that everybody says, look, they're the same, but it's only in Jesus you find all the great teachings located in one person. You don't have to go study all the other books. The greatest moral teachings in all the other religions are found in one location, the teachings of Jesus. In fact, he's so profound a moral teacher. The greatest men and women of our time period Martin Luther King Jr., Mother Teresa, Gandhi, all pointed their roots for their expressions to Jesus. Gandhi wasn't a follower of Jesus, but he pointed to Jesus and where he got many of his ideas. In fact, the majority of our Western thinking about loving our enemy, loving and caring for our neighbors, of taking somebody to a hospital, of helping the orphans and the poor and the widow, of doing good social work, births from the teachings of Jesus. This is an incredible moral teacher. With that note in his head, C.S. Lewis in his book, God in the Dock, said, we've got a problem. On the one side, clear, definite moral teaching. On the other side, claims, which if not true, claims like what we just read in the book of John, are those of a megalomaniac. 
compared with whom Hitler was the most sane and humble of men. There is no way, halfway house and there is no parallel in other religions. In fact, he goes on to say, if you talk to the Buddha and said, are you the son of Brahman? He'd say, no, you're still stuck in illusion. As you talk to Muhammad and said, are you the son of Allah? After he'd torn his clothes, he would cut your head off because that's blasphemy to the highest extent. He goes on, if you were talking to Confucius, Confucius would have just told you, no, you just live according to the moral laws. It doesn't matter. Your question makes no sense. The idea of a great moral teacher saying what Christ said is out of the question. In my opinion, the only person who can say that sort of thing is either God or a complete lunatic suffering from the form of delusion which undermines the whole mind of man. If you think you are a poached egg when you are looking for a piece of toast to suit you, you may be sane. But if you think you are God, there is no chance for you. And so he sets up either Jesus is a big time liar at the level of a devil. And therefore not a very good moral teacher. And we should not have sustained any of these wonderful thoughts that have birthed most of the good in our society. Or he's a raving lunatic. That you shouldn't really trust his logic in any of these other cases. I don't know why we would even endeavor to follow him. Unless he is exactly what he says and he's Lord. In fact, that's his conclusion as he raises it. He says he did not produce the effect on any of the people who actually met him of just a a passive, oh, you're a moral teacher. He produced mainly three effects. Hatred, terror, adoration. There was no trace of people expressing mild approval. And so I challenge you this morning, if you've come to the place where Jesus is just mildly somebody you follow, mildly somebody you think about, maybe somebody you can just dismiss. In fact, many of us maybe go, you know what? He probably didn't even exist, which is a very common thing today. He's a legend created from the fictitions of man. Well, here's where Lewis steps in for us. Is he a liar? Is he a lunatic? Is he the Lord or is he a legend? Lewis steps up and says, first of all, it's not likely that they made Jesus into God. These are Jewish people we're talking about here. And Jewish people were fiercely loyal to monotheism. And he says, it is a very odd thing that this horrible invention about a religious leader should show up among the one people in the whole earth least likely to make such a mistake. He says, this is ridiculous. They shouldn't make that kind of a mistake. Secondly, the Caesars were already doing this, so it wouldn't have been new they already rejected that concept. Thirdly, though, he says another point that is on very that is on that view would that another point is that on the view that you would have to regard as the accounts of the man as being legends. Now, as a literary historian, he says, I am perfectly convinced that whatever else the gospels are, they are not legends. I have read a great deal of legend, and I am quite clear that they are not the same sort of thing. They're not artistic enough to be legends, speaking of the Gospels. From an imaginative point of view, they're clumsy. They don't work to things properly. Most of the life of Jesus is totally unknown to us. And if the life of anyone else who lived at that time, and no people building up a legend would allow that to be so. Apart from bits of platonic dialogues, there are no conversations that I know of in ancient literature like the fourth Gospel. There is nothing even in modern literature, until about 100 years ago when the realistic novel came into existence. In the story of the woman, for his example, in the story of the woman taken in adultery, we are told Christ bent down and scribbled in the dust with his finger. Nothing comes 
close to this. No one has ever based any doctrine on it. And the art of inventing little irrelevant details to make an imaginary scene more convincing is a purely modern art. Don't be deceived when somebody tries to tell you, oh, they're trying to convince you that it was real. That is a modern thing we do with fiction. Unheard of before the 1800s. The Gospels are so sincere in their presentation of what Jesus said and who he was. A man who studied ancient literature basically had to say and had to give his life to the fact that these are eyewitness accounts. This is what really happened. Jesus really claimed he was God to the Jewish people. And they killed him for it. And the reality is that he is not a liar. Because you don't have that kind of depth of knowledge of insight of human beings and what we need. And he's definitely not lunatic. And so suddenly we have to make a decision. If he's Lord, what do we do? He told us you must honor him. As you honor God the Father, so you honor him. But here's the danger for us, folks. We live in a world that doesn't get honor. So I talked to my buddy Stephen about honor, and and he kind of laid it out for me in the military sense. The military explains honor in a very good way. And he said, the first, there's kind of three ways to honor people. The first route in honoring somebody is that you would remember them in a ritual. If somebody had died, you would remember back to them. Or if somebody had done a great thing, you remembered back to them at a ritual. And that's how you honored them, their memory or whoever they were. The second movement was really this reality that you honored somebody because they got rank. And so you celebrated with them. You, you did a celebration. You did a party. They made up. They got, came to this new rank. The third way was you honored them with obedience. Even though you may not like the person who's above you in rank, you honored the rank in obedience to what they told you to do. And so there were these three ways of remembrance, celebration, and finally, obedience. In the same way, we should honor Christ. In the, sense of, in the sense of remembrance, that's what we come to here, to remember Christ. And let me tell you, it's not easy in this culture, is it, to remember God? You've grown up in a secularized culture. Anybody know what secularized means? It's very simple. It means that you and I have been taught there are areas of life that God doesn't apply. Why pray for the Super Bowl? God doesn't care. No, it doesn't matter. Leave God at home. You can go to work. You don't, if you're a principal or a teacher, you're not allowed to bring God into the subject. What does he matter? It doesn't mean you can't have God. It means he needs to be on the edge of your thinking, not at the center of your thinking. If that was the case, Jesus Christ could not be a teacher in our school districts. Because whatever Jesus does is what the Father does. Nothing that he did was against what God does. The reality is secularism, where you can pull God out of a center of your life, can't happen as Christians. We're to follow Christ, we said. And if we're to follow Christ, we follow him everywhere we go. We remember him in everything. Every aspect of culture is God's. Every aspect of life, he belongs in the center of because we are followers of the one true God, Jesus Christ. And you remember him on the freeway, on your way home, whenever all things are going loose and you're going, oh yeah, God's there, okay. We remember him when we're teaching our kid to swing that baseball bat and not to be cocky about it at the end, but to have a care for their opponent. We teach them how to understand truth and and the reality of nature and that laws don't float around with impermanent structures attached to them. Like, I'll give you an example of what I mean. Law of gravity. 
Who says it's going to happen tomorrow? Who said? Well, it's a law of gravity. It's connected to what permanent thing? If the universe is constantly changing, who says it'll be there tomorrow? Why is it a law if it's not attached to that which is impermanent? You need God at the center of everything as Jesus Christ is clearly, clearly presented. Let's remember him and honoring him to bring him into whatever we do. Second, let's celebrate what our Lord has done. Let's celebrate and honor him with honor. That's why we gathered this morning to sing out about our Lord, to celebrate he saved us from sin and hell and death and that we have life in him. We come together to talk about what he has done. You wake up in the morning and you thank him for the previous day and that you have a new life, a new day to live for him. You get into the word of God because you want to honor him him and see his glory and wonder more about who this God is, that's honoring Christ in celebration. Amen? Finally, you obey him. Verse 24 said it. Truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, the other way to hear that word here is heed, and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come to condemnation and to judgment, but has passed from death to life. And that's where I want to leave it. If Jesus Christ is Lord, how do we do at heeding his word? How do we do at listening to him? If you aren't a Christian in here this morning, I've laid out a very difficult thing that indeed Jesus is judge and his right over life and death. He sits at the door of heaven and it is he who lets people in, not Peter. And Jesus holds the keys. And it is what we do with what he says. And whether we've trusted the one who sent him, that God loves you, that Jesus bore your sins on the cross to give you access to heaven. It's that trust in that that makes all the difference. And I just want to ask you, will you heed his word this morning? And will we as Christians honor Christ wherever we go because he is our God? Would you bow your heads with me? Lord Jesus, thank you that you are our distinctive. You are the one who indeed makes our faith radically different from all others because you are our God who has loved us and we know that that love is what saves us because you give life. If you weren't God, we wouldn't have life. If you weren't God, we wouldn't have a salvation. Thank you for what you've given us. Help us to live it out and remember it every day. In Jesus' name, amen.